Hello. Hi. Hello, Professor. I can hear you now. Sure. Uh, yeah, uh, we, we can hear you as well. Uh, so um, thanks to everybody for coming. Uh, especially thank you, uh, Professor, for uh, uh, coming uh, on this episode. Uh, so I'm very excited today because uh, uh, you're, you're a truly phenomenal guest and uh, it's, it's a dream to uh, talk to you. And uh, it's, it's so nice to have you on. So uh, for those who, are, uh, uh, who, who don't know about uh, Professor Damodaran, he's a, a finance professor at the CERN School of Business at New York University. Uh, he's considered to be the world's greatest authority on valuing <laughs> companies. Uh, he's written many books on the subject. And uh, what, what I especially like about him is he's a wonderful teacher. He's got an enormous passion for teaching. And it comes out in everything that he does. He's got this uh, wonderful YouTube channel uh, where he puts up his courses for free. A anybody can go and learn about valuation uh, from, from that channel. He's got this lovely blog called uh, Musings on Markets. And see, the, there are some people you read anything that they write, you learn something new. And um, either, either it's a concept that you didn't know before or a fresh insight into a subject uh, that you didn't have before. Uh, for me, Professor Dambodaran is like that. E every time I read something written by him or watch one of his videos, I learn something new or I cultivate some uh, fresh way of thinking about something. Uh, so, so if you haven't checked out his blog or YouTube videos or books, uh, I strongly recommend that you do that. It's almost a guarantee that it will make you a better investor. Uh, so the structure of this episode is that I will get things started by asking uh, uh, Professor Damodaran some questions. And um, uh, after that, uh, we'll, we'll take callers. Uh, so, uh, Professor, do, do you want to uh, say a few words before, uh, before we get started? Or can <laughs> sure, I, yeah, I'll be glad. To. The, the first thing in, uh, in investing to remember is the expectations game can work against you. And you've set expectations so high that all you can have is a negative surprise now. It's a company that reports 50% growth in earnings. You have 40% growth, your stock price drops. So I, I'm, I'm grateful for the kind words, but I'm worried about what kind of expectations you might have set. But anything is fair game. I mean, I, I, you know, I, I, find, I often cringe at the notion that I'm an expert because um, this is a business where everybody claims to be an expert, but, but the reality is none of us knows very much about the deeper layers of what goes on in markets and what drives value. I'm a dabbler. My strength, if there is one, is that I dabble in lots of different things from Bitcoin to to country risk. So to me, everything is fair game when, when we talk about investing. So I'm ready for any questions you might have or any questions that your audience might have. So let's go. Yeah, absolutely. So this dabbling in everything, I, I, I really love that. It's uh, it's curiosity that that takes you places, and uh, that, that's such a such a great quality to have. Uh, so, so uh, my my first question um, it has to do with um, how how do you value uncertainty? So, uh, when you have a business where the cash flows are uncertain, uh, do you have to adjust your valuation to account for that uncertainty? So, just to give you an example, uh, suppose we have two two businesses, say uh, A and B. And A will give us $1 every year from, from now to eternity without any risk. So we get $1 per year from business A. 
Uh, with business B, it's more complicated. We, we get either $0 or $2. So uh, they both have a 50-50 chance. Uh, uh, and, and each year is uncorrelated with all the other years and, and so on. So, so now we have two businesses. Their expected cash flows in any given year uh, are exactly the same, $1. Uh, so, but in business B, there is some uncertainty about those cash flows, whereas in business A, there is no uncertainty. So should we value these businesses differently? And if, if so, how do we do that? You just described an experiment that was run almost 500 years ago by an Italian called Bernoulli. And this is exactly the experiment he ran, which was he had tossed a coin, heads you win, tails you lose. And he actually essentially promised people an expected value of infinity on the coin toss, which is basically you could keep doubling or, or going to zero. And um, he discovered that people paid like $3.50 for an expected value of infinity. Therein lay the foundations for how we think about risk and investing. There's no right answer to the question. I'll tell you what, what the answer is going to depend on. Are we risk averse as human beings? And that's a very, very, very mixed question, right? I mean, we're risk averse in some things and risk seeking in others. I mean, think about it. When you get in your car, the first thing you do is you put your seatbelt on. Now you're risk averse. What's the next thing you do? You back out really fast in the street and you take off at 50 miles an hour. Human beings' relationship with uncertainty is a very, very complicated one, as can be explained by people going to casinos or buying a lottery ticket. But the bottom line is, if you look across people on large bets, they tend to be risk averse, which is just a complex way of ask, answering the, of answering a question, which is most people, given that choice, would take the dollar guaranteed cash flow over the expected cash flow of a dollar. And in fact, if you push them, they will say, I'll take a 75 cent guaranteed cash flow instead of this expected cash flow. Now, whether any of you, your viewers have watched, uh, let's make a deal with Howie Mandel. It's a very stupid show. It's a show where um, the, the people, the participants in the show are given a choice exactly like the one you described, where you have two suitcases, one with a million dollars, one with nothing. And then Howie then tries different numbers. Would you take 300? Would you take 350? Very few people, uh, you know, hold out to 500. Most of them accept 350 or 400,000 for an expected value of 500,000. And that's a measure of your risk aversion. In fact, in um, there's a version of valuation where you use what are called certainty equivalents. And you say, what the heck is that? That's exactly what I described. The certainty equivalent cash flow you would take instead of a uncertain cash flow. So bottom line is because we're risk averse, we're going to value the second investment lower than the first investment. It's the nature of human beings. Uh, absolutely, absolutely. Uh, so uh, would would our valuation for, for B, uh, would, would it depend on um, the, the universe of possible investments? So I'm, I'm thinking, suppose, suppose we have a, no, a, a second. It, it, should, it shouldn't, I mean, in a sense, you know, it, it might be influenced by it, but ultimately the, 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 the gamble that you gave is not an investment. It's just a gamble. Once sure. we start thinking about investing, we're not talking about gambles. We're talking about much more complex choices we make. But I think you're, making, you're bringing up a broader issue. When you're investing in the market, if you're risk averse, you want an expected return to cover the risk. But that expected return, you turns out you have to be a price taker on some dimensions. What does that mean? 
in this market, for instance, if you walked into the market and said, I will not accept any investment that makes less than 15% because that's how risk averse I am. That's perfectly okay for you to make that statement, but be aware of the fact that if you do that, you might end up with all cash in your portfolio because nothing out there makes 15%. So do you have to factor in what's out there to come up with the expected return? No, but if you actually want to invest your money, you have no choice but to factor in what's out there as a choice in terms of what you can settle for as you expect to return. In fact, when we talk about equity risk premiums, this fancy word in valuation, that's the price of risk in the equity market. It's what investors collectively have said they will accept for investing in equities as a class. So you right. can choose to take that price. You can choose not to take the price. And one reason I compute it every month is let people be aware of what that price is. Not that I'm forcing it on anybody, but I'm saying, look, this is a market where stocks are priced to earn about six and a half to seven percent right now. You don't like it? I'm with you. But there's, you know, you either have to be a price taker and invest in equities at that price, or you can have to find something else. And God help you in finding something else that makes 10, 12, or 15 percent. So, at some levels, you got to be a price taker. At another level, though, if you're truly risk averse and that price doesn't look right to you, you have the choice of not investing at all. Right. Uh, absolutely. Absolutely. Um, so I, I was thinking, so what if you had a, a, a second company, which is also exactly like B, let's, let's call it C, mm -hmm. and that also earns either $0 or $2, but uh, it is perfectly negatively correlated to B. So then um, if, in years that B gives you $0, C will give you $2 and, and so on. Then you can construct a portfolio uh, that gives you exactly the same performance as A. Right. True. Uh, by by equal weighting B and C. But then if you value right. B and C each individually as less than the value you assign to A, then uh, the value of the portfolio is not equal to just the sum of the values of the constituents of the portfolio. Right. There, how how do you think about there's that? A, yeah, there's a fundamental flaw in your logic. When you say you valued investment two and three used to discount rate. But the discount rate is supposed to use is the discount rate that reflects the risk of that investment in a portfolio. Uh -huh. This is where I think traditional, when you think about how risky is a company, you might be missing the point. Because it's not how risky a company is, but how much risk it adds to a portfolio that determines what discount rate to use. So if you had a world where there are only th those three investments, all three of those investments are essentially risk-free. Because... On investment one, it's standalone risk-free. Investments two and three, it's collectively risk-free. From that perspective, you'd be using the risk-free rate to value all three investments. And it's one reason why people have to be careful when they think about what discount rate would I use to value a company, that you don't get too caught up in looking at the company. I'll give you a classic example. You value young biotech company that's working on a blockbuster drug. There's a huge amount of risk, right? But the risk Absolutely. is almost entirely in the FDA approval process. The reason right. I emphasize that, that is risk that is specific to the company. Your expected cash flows would re reflect the probabilities that the FDA will approve you, but it's still an expected cash flow. If you ask me what discount rate should I apply on it, I would be double counting or counting the wrong risk if I used a really high discount rate on those cash flows because almost all of the risk in that company is risk that will disappear in an overall portfolio that I create. 
because each individual company will bring company-specific risk. I know, that, you know for many people, intuitively, it seems like you should be focusing on your company when you think about risk. But that might lead you to the wrong place because that company is now going to become part of a portfolio. And because it becomes part of a portfolio, the way you think about risk should be based on how much risk will it add to the portfolio. You've essentially gone back to 1952. That's where Harry Markowitz walked into that library in Princeton. And he sat down, he started thinking about risk, and he thought about risk the way everybody thought about risk then. How risky is this company? And then he asked this very intuitive question. It's risky as a standalone company, but how risky is it to me if I'm adding it to a portfolio of 10 or 20 companies? And therein was born finance as we know it now. Because that particular insight is what drove us to think about risk and return models and how to measure the risk in an investment. Yes, absolutely. So when I first came across uh, Markowitz's theory, uh, I I think people get a little too caught up on this uh, whole idea of uh, standard deviation and things like that. And they say that that's not a measure of risk and and so on. But but this idea of uh, a portfolio and analyzing correlated bets together as one. It's a law of large numbers. It's a law of large numbers. It requires nothing more than the law of large numbers, right? which is take your favorite sport, right? Whether, let's take basketball. If I asked you, on, you know, what is, uh, what is LeBron James going to score to, or no, day after tomorrow, whenever he's playing next? You can make an estimate, but that estimate comes with a lot of noise because you can have a really good day, a really bad day. But if I ask you on average, how much is LeBron James going to score over the next 30 games, you're going to be much more precise. The law of large numbers doesn't require a deep thought. It's just the fact that on individual companies, mistakes can cut in both directions. When you average across companies, those mistakes average out. It's nothing more, nothing less. And that concept is one of the most powerful concepts in statistics because it means combining very risky bets can create a portfolio that is relatively safe or even totally safe. Uh, absolutely, absolutely. The the uh, but but when you have uh, uh, correlated bets, then uh, the you have to add a few wrinkles on top of the law law of no, large No, it's numbers, the same right? logic applies as long as they're not perfectly correlated. You don't even need to remember stocks are almost never never negatively correlated with each other. There is almost no sector out there that moves in the opposite direction of the market. None that I'm aware of. Gold mining stocks used to thirty years ago, but even they don't do it. Everything is positively correlated. Let's start with that. But even if everything is positively correlated, the law of large numbers still works because there's still a portion of the correlation that is company specific. So don't even bring in negative correlations. You don't need them. That's too strong a requirement for diversification. All you need is that things don't move together. Now, because if things don't move together in perfect lockstep, in other words, correlation is not plus one, then expanding across multiple investments will always, always reduce your overall risk in your portfolio. Uh, sure, uh, exactly. But uh, there, there is a lower uh, uh, limit, right, to how low yeah. you can go. And the higher the, the correlation... So the lower limit actually comes from the fact that if you hold every... You, I mean, you can't reduce your risk forever. Can, There's a certain uh, limit. It's not that you can't reduce your risk forever. You still have macroeconomic risk that cuts across all companies, right? This last week has been a very simple example of how you can be the most diversified investor on the face of the earth, and you're still going to feel the pain when you have a macroeconomic risk that cuts across companies and sectors. 
So that's that's a that's why you demand an equity risk premium. If you could make all equity risk disappear by diversifying, the equity risk premium should be zero. You should settle for the risk free rate. So there is a lower bound because there's macroeconomic risk that everybody's exposed to. You can't run from that. Sure, and and I think uh, Professor Markowitz, um, Harry Markowitz, he, he was one of the first people to to uh, rigorously show the existence of this, like. You can get rid of some risk by diversification, but if, when you have correlations, um, you, even if you have a large number of stocks, if they are all correlated, you, you cannot get rid of all risk just by increasing the number of stocks um, because of the correlations, essentially. He's the first person to even ask the question. That's it, right? Nothing that Harry did was was particularly difficult to do. And pure statistics, any statistics undergraduate could have done it. He was the first person who asked the question, how do we think about risk when we have diversified portfolios? And I tell people this, look, people think that to do research, you need to bring in high powered statistics and high powered math and lots of data. And all of those are critical. But you know what the most critical issue in statistics is, is asking the right question. And if you can ask the right question, in a sense, you've you've, you've moved 50 percent of the way towards doing good research. He asked a question that nobody had asked before. It's amazing that we've had investments for hundreds of years and people hadn't thought about that question systematically of how does risk differ when I have 30 companies in my portfolio already, as opposed to somebody's putting all their money in one company. And once he asked the question, everything else flowed out of that. Uh, yes, that, that's such a great point. Uh, asking the, the right question, uh, that, that, that is such a key part of research. Uh, absolutely. Um, so so um, uh, the, the next question I want to ask you has to do with uh, the, this notion of cost of capital. So there's a cost of debt capital and a cost of equity capital. Mm-hmm. And um, the, the cost of debt capital is fairly easy uh, uh, for people to understand, which is uh, when, when, when a company takes on debt to uh, finance a project or something like that, uh, the, the interest payments are the cost of that debt and they show up on the income statement. Um, and, and maybe uh, the debt increases the risk a little bit, uh, risk of bankruptcy or something like that. Uh, uh, so so, so there, there is that uh, additional cost that doesn't show up on the income statement in terms of extra risk. But by and large, people understand the cost of debt. But when you look at an income statement, there's no such uh, corresponding line item for the cost of equity. So um, when, when I look at cost of, when I, when I hear somebody say cost of capital, I, I just, in my mind, I mentally replace that with uh, DCF discount rate. Uh, <laughs> because I, I don't think I have a good understanding of what exactly the cost of equity capital is. Uh, so, uh, would you please help us understand um, what this cost is? Because it doesn't show up on the income statement. Well, I, I have a paper on my website. You, I mean, it's, you can download it. I have a presentation as well where I title costs of capital, the Swiss army knife of finance. Because it shows up everywhere and it takes on different roles. When I teach corporate finance, which is about how to run a business, and I teach valuation and corporate and cost of capital is all over the place. So here's what the cost of capital is, all the different roles it plays. For a company, it becomes a hurdle rate that the company uses to decide whether to take projects or not. 
for a company, the cost of capital becomes the optimizing tool to decide the right mix of debt and equity. To a company, the cost of capital becomes the divining rod that it uses to decide how much to pay in dividends and how much to buy back in stock. So within a company, the cost of capital is a hurdle rate, an optimizing tool for capital structure, and a determinant of how much you return to your shareholders. In valuation, you're right, it does become a discount rate. And you're right, there are two components to capital, debt and equity. And debt is easier than equity, though I think you're being awfully casual and you say when it adds a little risk. There's a reason religions across the world inveigh against borrowing money. I mean, there are some religions where if you borrow money, you're a sinner. And God help you if you're the person lending money because you're destined for help. There's a reason for that. Through time, we know that people and businesses have gotten into trouble. These are promising good businesses by borrowing too much. So I wouldn't be so quick to dismiss the risk that it adds. Debt can be deadly for companies. It can be deadly because it can take a great company with huge potential and truncate its life. And the cost of debt is not the interest payment on your on your books. I mean, that's a, that's a common misconception. It's not the rate at which you borrowed money. It's a rate at which you can borrow money today. I'll give you a very simple example. You take a Russian company, which went out to borrow money two weeks ago. Got a cost of debt, right? The banks landed money. Let's say the same Russian company is going out to borrow money today. There's zero chance it's going to be able to borrow money at the same rate. The cost of debt is a changing number because it reflects the changing credit risk of the company. And while it might not change that much for a mature, stable company, it can change when there are macro circumstances. The cost, but, but at least you can get a sense of it. Cost of equity is difficult because it's an implicit cost. It's, I describe it as a number that you have in your head when you buy shares of stock in a company. So if you bought Peloton last week and you said, I'm buying Peloton because the stock is now down to 27, I think it's a good bargain. Implicitly, you're buying Peloton because you hope to make a return on that stock. If I pegged you and I said, you know what? Tell me what that expected return is. What do you think you can make on Peloton? And you say 18%. That is your cost of equity. Now you can see why it's a nightmare to estimate. Because I've got to be able to read people's minds. And there are hundreds of thousands of people who own stock in Peloton and try to come up with one number for the company. And this is where our earlier discussion of risk is going to come into play. When you think about the cost of equity for a company, it's not your cost of equity or my cost of equity you should be thinking about because neither of us is a marginal investor. Neither of us owns enough shares or trades those shares in sufficient quantities to determine the stock price. It's going to be determined by the marginal investors in Peloton. You're saying, who are they? They're the ones who own a lot of stock and trade that stock in Peloton. Let me cut to the chase. You look at the 15 largest investors in Peloton. I think 14 of them are big institutional investors, BlackRock, Vanguard. And if you think about how they see risk in Peloton, these guys are diversified. When they look at risk in Peloton, they look at the risk added to a portfolio. So earlier discussion about how we measure risk now becomes made for us because our marginal investors are diversified. Every risk and return model in finance says, look, the cost of equity you should be thinking about is the cost of equity to that marginal investor. It doesn't solve your problem, but it makes your problem simpler because it then says that the only risk you should be factoring in there is the risk that those marginal investors give in the company. And ultimately, a cost of equity is going to have three components. First, there's going to be a risk-free rate, which is not yours or mine to set. It's set by the market. 
what you can make on a truly risk-free investment. Second, there's an equity risk premium we talked about. This is the price of risk in the equity market, reflecting the collective risk aversion of investors. And the third is a measure of risk in this company that reflects how much risk people see in the company. Now, they're diversified. That risk is going to be the risk you cannot diversify away. Now, you might not be a believer in the CAPM or the arbitrage pricing model or multi-factor models. It doesn't matter. They all come up with a measure of relative risk. That's what a beta is. If you don't like beta, it's just replace it with the word relative risk. Is your stock riskier than average or safer than average? So an average risk stock, that relative risk measure is going to be one. A beta is just a standard for relative risk. So it's true, it's a little more work, but it's not that complicated. It's not that complicated in terms of principles if you take it one step at a time. Oh, absolutely. Th- thank you for that. That that was uh, su- such a great answer. Uh, I just want to go back to this one point that you mentioned, uh, which is that uh, the cost of debt uh, is the it, it depends on the rate at which you can borrow money now, not uh, long. Term. Let me add long term. Of- so you uh, can't play sure. the term long. structure and tell me your cost of debt is low. So I'm going to take all your debt short term or long term and attach a long term cost of borrowing money today. Uh, sure. Um, so, uh, do we have to distinguish between uh, legacy debt, uh, which no. is the cost of debt that already uh, uh, that has already no, you been don't. taken? No, you don't. And here's why: when I think of every discounted cash flow valuation as an exercise in acquisition valuation, where you're buying all of the equity in the company today and all of the debt in the company today, even if it's not traded at current market values. Guess what's going to happen to your legacy debt if rates have gone up? The market value of the debt is going to be a discount on the face value. It's like a, it's like buying a bond where the interest rate has risen above the coupon rate. So the fact that you have legacy debt at low rates gives you, you know, no particular advantage in the cost of capital because I'm assessing what it will cost me today to buy a company at updated market right. prices. So you don't have to draw a distinction between old debt and new debt. It's all debt and it all has a current cost of borrowing attached to it. Okay. But, but suppose we have two two companies and w- one of them intends to keep rolling over its debt and the other one does, does not intend to keep rolling over its debt. Uh, so then say, wh- then why change would... the debt, change the debt ratio over time? What, where, where is this idea that your cost of capital is a one time deal come from? No, your cost of capital is your specific number. So let's say both companies started 40 percent debt. One expects to stay at 40% debt forever, and the other expects to go down to 0% debt in four years. Your cost of capital right. each year then for the second company will be different to reflect different debt ratios. You get a different value for the second company because it's adopting a different path. Higher or lower, I don't know. So you don't try to put into the debt ratio and cost of capital today things that will happen next year, two years out, four years out that you see happening in the company because you have the power to revisit the cost of capital calculation every year. So if I'm valuing an LBO, it'd be crazy to leave the debt ratio today's number because I know that the LBO equity guys are going to try to bring the debt down. So cost of capital is a year-specific number. It's not one number that you compute and leave forever. And that's, I think, a common mistake that people make in discounted cash flow valuation. They try to load it, load everything into today's cost of capital. You don't have to. Things change. Change your cost of capital. That that's such a beautiful point. Thank you so much uh, for for explaining it, Professor. And uh, so so uh, one one final question, uh, which is, how do you invest your own money? 
based on evaluations. I've always told you know, told my students that if you're not willing to act on your evaluation, this is such a waste of time. Why would I want to waste my life valuing companies? I mean, I'm not, I don't value companies because I'm intellectually curious. I don't lie awake and say, I wonder what Spurbank is worth right now or what Luke Oil is worth right now. You value companies for one reason and one reason alone, because you want to invest your money. And I think it would be hypocritical of me not to invest my own money based on my own valuations. So when I valued those Fangam stocks a couple of weeks ago, I did buy Facebook. I did buy. In fact, I am now the proud owner of five of the six Fangam stocks. Because while three of them were overvalued at the time that I valued it then, the price dropped enough that I'd limit buys on all of them at my valuations. And all of my limit buys kicked in. So it's my, I invest my money based on evaluations. And from that perspective, you know, it's, um, you know, I, and I'll be quite honest, I don't do it because I want to beat the market. That'd be nice if I do it. I'd do it because, you know, I feel comfortable enough with these valuations that I can invest my money in them. And if I don't make any excess returns, that's okay with me as well. I don't invest because I deserve to be rewarded because that's one of the most dangerous places to be in investing is we get righteous about your deserved rewards and then you then you double down and do really stupid things to get your rewards that you think you're entitled to. Absolutely. So just one follow-up on that. So yeah. Warren Buffett has this famous uh, uh, notion about the, the too hard pile. Like there are some businesses that are just too hard for him to understand. So are, are there businesses that are just too hard for you to value? Uh, have you well, put any businesses in your uh, uh, too hard pile of value? I'd say other than healthcare, now where especially with young biotech companies working on drugs, where I leave them alone because that requires an understanding of the drug, of the FDA approval process, of the disease that I don't have myself. I have no qualms about investing in companies that are ultimately, no matter how complex a business is, it boils down to three inputs, right? Revenue growth margins and reinvestment. So if I can get my head around how this business will play out on those dimensions, I'm okay investing in them. And let's face it, Warren Buffett has paid a hefty price for refusing to invest in things he doesn't understand. And here's the reality. As you get older, There'll be, few, there'll be more and more businesses you don't understand because you don't use their products. So you say, look, I will not invest in TikTok because it's crazy. Those kids are stupid. You might be missing a great opportunity. So you know what? No, don't be so quick to take businesses off your will invest list and put them into the do not invest list. Just because you don't understand the business, you don't understand the product. Listen to your kids, talk to them, see what, what it's all about. And then ask the question, how does this business make money? I don't have to understand how TikTok works or why kids like it to understand what kind of business model it has. I should be able to value TikTok if it chooses to go public. So I think from that perspective, I think we have to be careful not to throw too many businesses into that. I will not invest pile because that's dangerous. Uh, sh uh, sure. So, so we... What I hear you saying is um, a, a business may be too hard for you to understand today, but you should make an effort to try and understand uh, no, what what I, what the I'm economics saying, of the business. Yeah, what I'm saying is you don't have to understand the product to understand a business. There are two different right. things, right? 
you don't have to be a, somebody who says, I wonder what Cisco does to be able to understand how Cisco makes money. You don't have to be a, a tech genius to be able to say, I see what's, I don't understand quite how Snowflake works, but I can see how Snowflake makes or loses money. So I think you need to separate the fact that some products might be complicated, but the business model can be simple. Because ultimately, if you make money in advertising, you don't have to understand social media to, to understand how to make, you know, what drives advertising revenues. So I valued Uber when I had absolutely no idea how the ride-sharing business actually worked in on the inside. But I could I could see how the company made money, and that allowed me a pathway to value the company. So don't misunderstand not understanding a product with not understanding the business model. Um, sure. Um, if you don't understand the product, how how can you come up with an idea of is this like a sticky product or not? Do they have durable competitive talk, advantages or are they passing fads? How do you make that distinction if you don't understand people. the talk product? Talk to people, right? There are, you know, the fact that I don't understand a product doesn't mean I can't talk to people. I understood that ride sharing was sticky. When I started talking to my kids and asked them when was the last time you used a cab, and many of them said not in the last three years. We use Uber all the time. So sometimes, just, I mean, we, you know, I think one of the problems of having so much data and so many powerful tools is researchers become sitting in front of a computer, downloading stuff into big spreadsheets, computing ratios. In my primary, I've learned more about Uber by talking to Uber drivers than by any Uber financial statement or what I've learned by talking to Uber management. Sometimes just talking to people is the best research you can do. No, it, and there are very few businesses you will not be able to understand the basics if you're willing to talk to people. That, that, that's such a great point. Uh, th- thank you, Professor. Uh, uh, so, if I if I may ask one one more question. Uh, so, you you got uh, very early into this idea of teaching people online, and uh, your your first YouTube video was uploaded seven seven years ago, and today. Um, everybody's talking about um, learning things online. And um, so, so essentially, in, in this country, at least, um, education is uh, uh, expensive, but learning is free. So do you think free learning is, is going to become a, a threat to uh, established universities? I have a session I've done. You might be able to find it all uh, online called The Barbarians Are at the Gate. It's a, it's a session that I do for university administrators and professors about the threats coming to, to education. Having said that, though, I think the best thing universities have going for them is the tech people who start these education startups have no idea, no idea what an education really is. Therefore, I mean, I still remember when MOOCs came out for the first time about 15 years ago, and they said, this is the end of universities. I remember those huge, you know, courses you could take online. And they very quickly discovered that MOOCs were going nowhere because uh, for a couple of reasons. One is for every 100 people who start a MOOC, maybe two people actually finish the MOOC. And second, people are still going to university because a university is more than a collection of classes. It's networks. It's being in a safe place for the four most dangerous years of your life, the ages 18 to 22. It's entertainment. You go to Notre Dame, those football games are very much part of your education. So I made a list of all of the things that people get from a university. 
And classes are only a small piece of the puzzle. And I said, look, the barbarians are at the gate, but right now they haven't gathered their forces because each piece of education is under threat. Your network, which you used to go to college to get, well, LinkedIn is, is you can get there for $100 a year or 200 or whatever it costs you to have a premium LinkedIn account. You know, that uh, entertainment, right. you know. So basically each piece, a different online entity is coming after. But I think the problem with online education is everybody can take it, right? You know, you know if you go to Harvard or, you know, you know what the most valuable day of your life was, right? The day you got the admissions letter to Harvard. The remaining four years are kind of an afterthought. It's a fact that universities screen people. For employers, this is a huge plus that you've got Harvard and Stanford and Wharton and even NYU screening people for you. So you don't have to interview tens of thousands of people. You say, okay, if I go to Harvard, I know I'm going to get a smart kid. Whether they learned anything in the four years or not is kind of irrelevant. So I think if online education is truly going to be a threat to universities, I think you need to build it from scratch and say, what do people go to university for? And how do we, how can we get as close as we can to that package? And I think we're going to get there, but I think it's going to take a lot longer than people realize. It's not going to be overnight because inertia is the strongest force in humanity. People do things because that's what they've been trained to do. And let's face it, if you're 24 years, if you're 18 years old and you go to your parents and say, look, I'm not going to university because it's too expensive. I'll take an online degree. You know what they're going to tell you, right? They'll say, if you don't go to university, you don't have an education because in their minds, that frame of reference is if you get a university degree or education, if you don't, it might be completely false. You can say they're, they're working on false data. It doesn't matter. That's what they believe. That's what's going to drive their decisions. So it's going to take a while for that inertia to fade. But I think universities need to step up and do something soon. But I'll also tell you that having worked at a university now for close to 40 years, that universities are incapable of adapting and adjusting. They're the most inertia bound of all entities in the world because the inmates run the asylum. Universities are run by faculty and faculty have it too good under the existing system. Nobody wants to mess with a good thing. Teach three, four classes a year, get summers off, every seventh year is sabbatical. I mean, this is the good life. Why would you want to mess with it? Now, so even if I gave you this existential threat that's coming for you, you don't react. So I think universities are going to be caught blindsided because they don't seem to see the problem coming down the pike. So did, did you receive any pushback from uh, the university when you uh, uploaded your courses for free for, for everybody to take? Well, what's the only pushback they can have? They can ask me to leave the university. They're welcome to. See, one of the, one of the biggest advantages you have as a person is when you can walk, when you're willing to walk away from the table. And I'm lucky enough that I'm willing to walk away from the table from pretty much any deal that is offered to me. There's no deal that I have to take. I'm lucky. I know most people don't have the luxury. And I work to get to that place. So I don't do consulting. I don't do expert witness work. I don't do any. And I, you know, there's not, and I don't live beyond my means. So from that perspective, I know what's the worst they can do to me. They can threaten to make me leave, but I think they will lose more than I do. So from that perspective, I have the strongest side 
of the bargaining position here. And I, you know, so the, my, my, you know, I've told them, look, I'm going to put my classes online, take it or leave it. If you don't like it, then I'm willing to stop teaching. And you have to figure out somebody else and get in front of your 350 students every every class and teach them the class. I know exactly how much tuition money I deliver with my live classes. And they can't tell me that, that I'm costing them money because then I'm creating more surplus than deficit. So I use that to my full advantage when I bargain. So I've, I've, I haven't heard from anybody. And, and I'm so glad that you're you're using this advantage to help millions of people across the world no, learn see, fundamental I, I think, concepts. I think I've got to be very clear, though. I'm not a mother Teresa. I don't do it for altruistic reasons. I do it because I'm a teacher. Teachers want big audiences, right? It's like being in a, a, a theater. It's like being in the theater. Would you rather be a theater actor in front of an audience of 10 or 1,000? Every actor will tell you, I'd love to have an audience of 1,000. I'm a teacher, and this allows me to teach to a much bigger class. And that's what I see it every year that I teach my class. I'm glad I'm able to reach beyond the classroom. And I hope that there's something I bring to the physical classroom that tells my MBAs and undergraduates who pay that exorbitant tuition that they're getting something for their money. And so I'm, I, and if that's not true, then, you know, then I think they need to rethink why they're paying that tuition. I hope there's something that they gain from having a live experience that somebody watching online will not. But that's not going to stop me from 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 reaching as many people as I can. Oh, absolutely. Uh, so so yes, I mean you have your your reasons for teaching, but it uh, it has also benefited uh, millions of people. So I'm 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 definitely uh, I've benefited from your teaching. So I'm I'm glad. Uh, you use your negotiating power with the university for this. Um, so I, I think we, we are going to have a lot of questions. So I think I should uh, start taking callers uh, instead of monopolizing this. Um, so I just have a, a two requests for, for callers. Um, keep your questions short. And um, if, if possible, try to ask just one question. Uh, so as many people as possible get a chance. Uh, you can always get back in line if, if uh, 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 to ask a second question. So, so the next caller is uh, Casey. Uh, Casey is a regular caller on the show. Hey, Casey. Hey, Tenke. Hey, Professor. Thank you for this. Um, professor, in a stock market where close to 50% of the money is invested by a uh, society that's done via passive index funds, does that make it harder for active stock pickers compared to a stock market? say, back in the day where 100% of society was actively trying to, to pick stocks? No, I, I think you, we, you know, I, I, I know that many people are troubled by the growth of passive funds. But remember, active investing brought this on itself. By doing what? By consistently underperforming. The average, you know, the, the average mutual fund has underperformed the market for as long as it's been around. I mean, you can go back and look at research 60 years ago. The last 10 years, the options for investors expand and the information they have to see how badly the mutual funds are doing has also improved. So one reason money has flowed to passive funds is because of underperformance. But I think we need to step back and think about why is it that active investing is getting more and more difficult to win at every year? And I think it is. And one reason I think goes back to 2008. In 2008, as you remember, you had the banking crisis and you started to see things move together. In fact, pre-2008, about 25% of the variance in a typical stock 
in the U.S. came from the market, about 75% was company-specific. Post-2008, that number is closer to 50-50. Less of the variation in stock comes from the stock, more from the market, which makes it much more difficult to do stock picking. Because the essence of stock picking is it's not that you're focusing on the macro stuff. You get the micro stuff right, right? You go back a uh, you, know, you go back to Buffett, you go back to Graham, you're trying to gauge that company-specific risk and do your research and say, hey, I found the great, a great company. And I think that's become more difficult because the world has shifted under us. Welcome to globalization. We've linked asset classes, we've linked countries, we've linked geographies so well that more and more you see stocks move together, not just in the U.S., but across the world. And not just stocks, but stocks and bonds. And We're dragging every asset class into the mix. So I think what you're seeing is a reflection of the fact that the payoff to active investing has dropped off, but it's not gone to zero. I mean, I don't think that if you keep looking at the trend, many people look at the trend and say, what if we become 100% passively invested? I don't think that's going to happen because it ebbs and flows. Let's say it goes from 50 to 60 to 70. Fewer and fewer people are doing research on stocks. You know what's going to happen. More market mistakes are going to pop up because nobody's doing research. Markets are not magical. They don't just aggregate information. Somebody's got to. So at some tipping point, the payoff to doing active investing comes back again. Maybe we're at one of those tipping points. But for a decade, you've seen money flow into passive investing. And maybe there is finally a moment where people say there are things that are being massively mispriced out there. Maybe there's a chance for active investing. So you're an active investor. Don't give up hope yet. The the game hasn't changed, but the underlying crosses has changed, making it more difficult to get a payoff. But since so many other people are in passive funds, it actually improves your odds a little bit better because there are fewer people like you looking for great stocks to invest in. Thank you. Thank you, Professor. Uh, the, The next question comes from Shine. Hey, hey, uh, hey Tenke and uh, Professor uh, Damaran, thank you so much. Uh, you guys have been educating us a lot. How can we get this education into uh, our next generation? Uh, teenagers are not getting interested. They are on TikTok or other other uh, social media platform. Do you guys see that as a risk? I think of the two of us, Professor uh, Damodaran is the is the greater educator, so I will leave him to answer the question. No, they're young. Let give them a chance to grow up, right? They, they don't don't oversell it. You you take your sixteen year old or eighteen year old, you bulldoze them with financial concepts. You risk losing them forever. Trust me, they'll come around. I mean, I don't know what what you were like at sixteen or eighteen, but I wasn't thinking about the market at sixteen. It's not healthy, if you ask me, to be thinking about markets and investing when you're 16. You should be thinking about other stuff. So I think that, uh, uh, personally, I think we spend far too much time thinking about investing in markets and far too little time living our lives. So you know what? Uh, We can have our issues with social media and what people spend time on. But I think lecturing them on what they should be spending their time on is the worst possible thing you can do because you'll be undercutting any possibility of them actually getting interested. So there are subtle ways you can make things interesting rather than push investing down their throats. Talk about an interesting company. Take TikTok. 
Now, talk about the economics of TikTok. You know what? Because they're on TikTok so much, they will be educating you on what TikTok does, and you can be educating them about business at the same time. So I I think that um, you know uh, our kids are going to be okay. They're going to have a different set of skills than we do. But I teach young people, and if I keep saying, no, I, I have teachers of my vintage who look at their students and say, these students are so terrible. They don't do what the old days. We'd ask people to read fifty pages, and they wouldn't. These people, you know, these kids don't have the attention span. And I think that lays the foundation for finding excuses for why your teaching is not working. I have to adapt to my audience. Now, one reason that I'm on Twitter, I'm not on Facebook, but I'm on Twitter and I'm on YouTube, is that's how my students like to learn. Whenever I write a blog post, I also make a YouTube video. It's exactly the same content, but three times more people watch the YouTube video than read my blog post. That tells me something about how the world is changing in terms of how you like to collect information. I can. I can get mad about it and say that's terrible, or I can adapt to it. So I think sometimes adapting to things and adopting a soft sales pitch will accomplish a lot more than pushing them to do things that you really want them to do. Thank you. Thank you very much. You're welcome. Uh, so, Professor, um, you mentioned that the the one of the problems with MOOCs is that um, very very few people actually complete. Uh, the, yeah. the, the MOOC, a very small fraction. So, do, do you have a sense for, uh, like, if if someone starts watching your YouTube videos, uh, let's say you have twenty five videos collected into a class, like how how many of them watch the first video, and then how many of them actually stay on and complete until the last video? Do you have a sense of of that? About ten percent finish it in the semester, in the actual semester that I teach the class. So spring 2022, my first class was on January 31st, land on May 8th. About 10% of the people who started on January 31st will finish by May 8th. But this, I leave my classes on for essentially for as long as they can stay on. You know, I would say about 50% end up completing if you look at a longer period. But 50% very quickly come to the recognition or the realization, and it's very healthy that this is not for them, that they, they came looking for something else. You know, like what they came looking for an easy way to invest. They were traders, and I make a big deal about trading versus investing. I don't teach trading. I'm not good at it, and how can I teach something that I'm not good at? And a lot of people want to trade. They don't want to invest. They want to know when to buy, when to sell. They're interested in mood and momentum, and they find this find that valuation is a grind and I don't blame them. If you're a trader, why are you wasting your time trying to value companies? So about half the people very quickly realized that this isn't what they wanted to do. This was what this was not what they thought the, the, the class was going to be about. And I let them go because it's healthy for them to move on and find something else that works for them. So, so why do you think so many more people finish your courses as opposed to uh, a MOOC. What is it about your YouTube videos that uh, that makes more people I, stay on? I, I, because I don't, I don't push it on people. I don't put it on platforms just for the sake. I don't want. To, I mean, people. I often get at least a couple of offers every week saying, "We've built this great platform. You can reach thousands of people more with our platform." And I've always stayed away because 
I have zero interest in trying to get hundreds of thousands of people to sign up. It might you know, boost my ego and you know, I, you know, I get picked up like you know, somebody's 500,000 people are taking the class. I, don't, I have no interest in that. I, I deliberately undersell this because I want a selection bias to kick in where the people who find it are people who are looking for it. So from that perspective, you know, it's probably a much more selected audience up front of people. And I'm pretty open in the very first class or in my description of the class saying, this is what I'm going to be doing. And I'm not going to tell you how to make money in 60 days or 90 days. I'm not going to tell you how to buy Bitcoin or when to sell it. So I try to deliver the, the ads that come before your video will, will tell, tell people that. Yeah. That's yeah. and that's something I don't control. That's one thing about YouTube right. is you know uh, I put it for free, but then you know it is a platform that still has to make money. So people often ask me, "Why do you, you know complain to YouTube about the ads?" And I say, "Look, I'm glad they're giving me a, pl a free platform. They don't charge me for the classes, but guess what? They're a business. They need to make money. So the ads clearly are going to be things I don't control, but." Hope, thankfully, the ads are only at the very start of the class and don't show up. If they start showing in the middle of the class, then I'll have a problem because that cuts into the continuity of the class. Right. Sure. Um, so so uh, the, the next caller is uh, uh, Energize. Yes, hi. Um, hi, Professor. Thank you, Tanke, for taking the question. And Professor, I've uh, been a very big beneficiary of uh, your work over the last four years. Thanks for that. So the question I have is, um, for an individual investor who is rather heavy on broad-based index funds like the Vanguard 500 or the total market funds and so on, what kind of blind spots um, would you advise or, or, or would you caution um, that we should be aware of? I've generally relied on the self-cleansing mechanisms of how these operate, meaning if a company goes down, it'll automatically get out of the index. So I, I don't really need to worry about it. Is that a safe enough strategy or is there something else I should be looking out for? Thank you. Well, you know, uh, being an index fund, the advantage is you get diversified at almost at basically no cost. And you can now create a global market portfolio, which used to be almost, a, you know, 30 years ago when you talked about a market portfolio, including every traded asset in the world. It was a delusion. You say, can't do that. Today, with the index fund choices we have, I can create a global index fund of not just stocks, but bonds and real estate. The problem, though, is markets go up and markets go down, even if you're fully diversified, which is you still have that macroeconomic risk of Russia invading Ukraine causes stocks collectively to drop 25 percent across the globe. Guess what? Your portfolio is also going to be down 25 percent. And. If you have a 30-year time horizon, I would say that's okay. So for my kids, when they put their money in index funds, I said, don't react to something that's going on because time is your ally. But if you're 63 years old and you need to cash out in two years, you got to think about buying protection. And one of the things I would, I would argue is there are enough instruments out there you can use to protect your money. If you feel you cannot drop below a certain amount, Maybe as you get closer and closer to your time horizon, you need to buy some market protection, whether it's in the form of puts or futures or forwards, but basically a way of saying, look, and I can't drop below the demand. But you have to think about it more seriously as your time horizon shrinks. Thank you, Professor. So uh, the next caller is uh, Shashi. Uh, hi, Tenke. Uh, hi, uh, Professor. Uh, uh, first of all, I just want to uh, give my gratitude uh, 
for you like uh, i've been uh, like a regular follower of your youtube videos it has helped me a lot uh, so my question is um, most of the dcf uh, i've gone through they use uh, something called an opportunity cost instead of uh, cost of capital for the discount rate yeah so uh, what do you think about that approach uh, that's one thing and no, another not an approach just a different word right with the approach cost of capital is an opportunity cost Every, everything is an opportunity cost i've never seen a dcf call a discount rate an opportunity cost so you're, you you must be looking at a very small subset of dcfs which call it that but a cost of capital is an opportunity cost because okay. ultimately the equity risk premium is what you can make on other investments so it's always an opportunity cost it's just another word for discount rate okay thanks professor thank you you're welcome So the next caller is Nirav. Hello, Professor. Thank you so much for sharing all your knowledge. Uh, uh, and uh, my question is: I, I know that traditionally you have not been a big fan of cryptocurrency, but I'm wondering if your views have evolved, and maybe you can comment on uh, even the decentralized finance aspect of it. Do you see any likes there? could you be more specific what exactly yeah, so, about cryptos do you are you are right, so, right so do you see them as a, a leg, uh, legitimate hedge against uh, you know the 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 fiat currency with all the economic insights that's, that's a purely it's a purely empirical question right have they been a good hedge for the 13 years that they've been around so far not so much <laughs> in fact they've acted like very risky yeah. stocks right that's really the, the, the see i have no problem with bitcoin let's let's take bitcoin like we can dance around as much as you want but bitcoin remains a central component of cryptos in spite of all the other stuff first right. you know the collective value of all cryptos around the world put together right now is right it's less than 2 trillion right the reason i emphasize that is that's less than the market cap of the largest company in the world apple one company has a larger market cap than all the cryptos put together which right. raises an interesting question why the heck have we spent so much time over the last decade debating and discussing something that's so small in the financial landscape they be like talking about a mosquito when you're looking at a population of 100,000 or suffering to it it really doesn't i, I think they have you no know, one of my problems with crypto is they they get this disproportionate attention given how small they are i don't even want to call them an asset class as as, right. as an investment investment game no and i you know as, as collectibles they haven't worked so far doesn't mean they can't work in the future but the jury is still out the jury is right. still out and we're going to find out if inflation comes back because that's going to be the test right if inflation right. comes back and bitcoin behaves like stocks and not gold it's time to bury the collectible story right they're terrible but- currencies right the other story the question is why can't we use them as currencies right as for you know they're terrible currencies because They're badly designed as currencies. They're badly designed because you trust no one. You got run these, you know, one thousand miners running on computers to figure out whether you have enough money in your in your Bitcoin wallet to pay for a cappuccino. It's no way to create a, a currency. So they're bad currencies. They haven't worked as collectibles. So 
what's the you know what are we even talking about here? So my problem with cryptos is not that they you know I have anything fundamentally against cryptos, but I'm not sure what the problem is that you're trying to solve. Is your problem that you don't trust governments and that you don't trust central banks, and you want to create something that is not controlled by government? I understand that. I mean I've described Bitcoin as a as a currency created by the paranoid for the paranoid. And that's okay. That's your reason for Bitcoin is you don't trust anybody. That's fine. But it's very difficult to build an efficient currency without trusting someone. So I will leave the door open to something evolving. But so far, at least, cryptos haven't lived up to their promise. And I'm not sure with many of the new crypto tokens and the crypto assets, what exactly the problem is that you're trying to solve. What is it that you're doing by creating these that you could not have solved with traditional choices out there. Right. But do you see why institutional money is flowing so much into this now? It seems like the balance is changing. Wait, wait, wait. How much institutional money could conceivably flow into an asset class, which is only less than $2 Let's be real. Right. So don't read. So you can talk about, hey, Goldman Sachs talks about investing. When your collective value is less than $2 trillion. How the heck can a lot of institutional money flow into an investment class that's worth less than $2 trillion when you look at the collective market value of equities being, what, $150 trillion, so bonds and real estate? This is tiny, even if it was completely dominated by institutional money. It'll be a tiny piece of their portfolios. And remember also, institutional money flows for one reason and one reason alone. It's not because somebody's done research and decided this is a great area to be in. It flows because of greed. Right. There's less institutional money flowing into Bitcoin now than a year ago. You know why? Because Bitcoin is down. When Bitcoin right. was at 66000 a lot. You know, institutional money tells me absolutely nothing. In fact, if I'm an intrinsic value investor, here's what I'm doing. I'm going to look at where institutional money is flowing and stay as far away as I can from <laughs> those asset classes and look at where it's flowing away from and put my money there. So institutions are the worst, you know, directors of what it means when you're successful, because the money is flowing. All it tells you is they've done well in the past. Got it. Thank you so much. Thank you so much. So, uh, Professor, just as a follow up on that, uh, does Bitcoin have any intrinsic value? So there is this uh, common argument that the intrinsic value of Bitcoin is zero, but so so is the intrinsic value of gold. Uh, approximately, gold has some intrinsic uses and things like that. So, as, as a valuation uh, expert, what, as, currency, as a dean of valuation, what, what do you think? Is I, as either a currency or a collect, neither currencies nor collectibles can be valued. They can be priced. So Picasso has no value, but it has a price. Uh, gold has no value because, as you said, if you can't remove the the few uses of gold, you know. Same thing with currencies. The dollar is no value. It can be priced. An exchange rate is just a pricing. In fact, you can think of the Bitcoin dollar exchange rate, a price, the Bitcoin price as a exchange rate between dollars and Bitcoin. So neither currencies nor collectibles can be valued because they're not cash flow generating assets. Note, I can create a security denominated in Bitcoin and I can value the security. I can value a security, but I cannot value. No, Bitcoin and Ethereum. Maybe Ethereum, if you treat it as a commodity. There are some crypto commodities where their value comes from the fact that they can be used as raw material to run blockchains. 
So for the most part, no, you can't value cryptos. It's not a hit against cryptos. I'll say the same thing about the US dollar or about gold. You can't value currencies. You can't value collectibles. You can price them. The, the, the flip side of that is when you have something that can only be priced, it has no upper limit and no lower limit. In other words, with Tesla, which can be valued, I can say, well, this is the value. We can disagree, but the value cannot be higher than this number or lower than this number. With pricing, there's no upper limit or lower limit, which means if you ask me what's the highest price Bitcoin can go to, I have no idea. What's the lowest price? Perhaps zero. But who knows? It could go negative. It could happen with gold a couple of years ago. So pricing is no upper or lower limit, which means you can have movements that are massive because there's nothing anchoring those movements. Absolutely. Absolutely. Uh, makes sense. So uh, then the next question is from Raj. Uh, hi. Uh, thanks a lot for this opportunity and for teaching all of us so much. Um, we really appreciate it. Uh, so my question is, how do you think about cash in the portfolio? Do you prefer staying fully invested or do you keep some uh, allocation of cash aside, like 10% or something for timing the market or something like that? I, I'll tell you something. Isn't it? If you're an individual, I've heard of very few individuals who are always fully invested. You know why? Because as human beings, you always worry about things that you might need cash for. So I've always had cash in my portfolio. And let's face it. When we say, I don't try to time the market, we're all lying. There's always that market timing component that happens. The way it shows up is if I look at how much cash you have as a percent of your portfolio, it gives me a sense of how what you think about the market. So when you're bullish, that number drops. It doesn't drop to zero, but it drops. And when you're bearish, it rises. So I've always had cash in my portfolio because you know I have a family and I have, they have cash needs. And I'm not selling stock to cover something that I have to pay for. Mm -hmm. Now, that cash is always, I think, I, I don't think I've ever exceeded more than 10% or 15% cash because I don't need that much cash to live through the next year or two. But I always have at least a couple of years if I can live on this cash if I needed to. If my income streams completely stopped, I can live on this cash. But you need to bring that in. I have a very simple test in investing. It's called the sleep test. If you lie awake at night wondering how your portfolio is doing, you fail the sleep test. And for me to pass the sleep test, I need to hold enough cash. So there's no right answer to how much cash is the right cash. It's whatever amount you need to be able to sleep at night without wondering what's happening to your portfolio. Okay. Yeah. Thank you so much. Uh, the next question comes from Andy. Hello, Professor. Uh, thank you very much for all your uh, video lectures. Uh, they help us immensely. Uh, my question, Professor, is uh, how do you value optionality? Uh, case in point, if we look at a company like Amazon in 2010, its stock was around 160 and now it's around uh, $3,000. So we don't know uh, what other business segments a particular company would expand into. So how do you go about uh, valuation for those kind of companies? Thank you. And I have a paper in optionality that's uh, titled Don't Mistake Opportunities for Options. I don't think there's much. You know, I think that if there's optionality in Amazon, it comes from their platform business, which they didn't really have. In 2010, Amazon Prime was tiny. Much of Amazon's success has not come from optionality. It's come from them redefining their business and their story 
and going from being a retail company to what I call an, you know, basically a disruption machine. So I think option, I'll be quite honest, in 95% of the time when people say optionality, they're not talking about optionality, they're talking about opportunity. For optionality, there are two things you need. One is you need exclusivity, which is you and only you can do this. And, the, and, and that's very difficult to actually get. And the second thing you need is is you need something that you and only you can access to de- determine whether you act. And it shows up, for instance, people talk about big data. You know, big data is great. Big data is valuable. But big data is useless to most of the people who claim to be investing in big data. I'll tell you, they'll make nothing on that big data. So I think there are there are, there is optionality, but I would reserve it for companies where I think it's coming from something that they have that's going to give them the exclusive right to do something in the future. I think Amazon Prime is now giving Amazon optionality, but that wasn't there in 2010. So I think if you're talking about in a, a Facebook, one reason I bought Facebook the first time around, Cambridge Analytica scandal, was because you look at two and a half billion users on that platform and you say, look, right now they're making all their money in advertising. When you have two and a half billion people spending an hour every day on your platform, there are other things you can do with them. Maybe sell them entertainment, maybe retail. And for me, that's always that extra bonus that kicks on. So the way I see it is I'm going to do an intrinsic valuation based on what I see the company's prospects now, which include expected future businesses I expect it to be in. I'm going to come up with an intrinsic value. And if the intrinsic value is higher than the price, I'm going to stop and ask the question, is there some icing on the cake for me here? If it's a company like Facebook, even if the intrinsic value is just $1 above the current stock price, which for most value investors, that's not much of a margin of safety. I'm buying Amazon, I'm buying Facebook because there is enough icing on the cake in the form of additional stuff they can do. But if you go out and invest purely based on optionality, you're going to crash and burn like Kathy Woods did because her entire portfolio is buying options, right? There's no real micro story. It's I'm going to be in the artificial intelligence. Why it's a big business. There's a lot of optionality. I'm going to buy an electric car company. Everything, every company that comes around. Why it's a big business. People who use optionality often end up being lazy and sloppy as investors because they're buying on not even based on expectation because they haven't taken the time to do it, but they're buying based on a macro story. So I'd say be cautious about optionality. It's something that helps you. But it's something that you shouldn't be building your entire investment on is optionality, especially when there's no exclusivity. Uh, I, I love that point that you just made. So uh, you, you have to look at optionality as, as icing on the cake, not a substitute for the cake itself. Uh, exactly. uh, the, the cake is the intrinsic value. <laughs> uh, that, that makes so, so much of sense. And uh, it, it's very much in line with what people like Monish Pabrai, how, how they invest. They they want the optionality, but they're willing to pay $0 for it. Uh, something or, or very, very cheap. Uh, so so that, that is such a great point. Uh, so so uh, the, the next caller is uh, Chris. All right, hello. Hi, Professor. I've been, I've been following you for at least 15 years. So I was excited to see that you were on. I, and I never used this app before. I just pulled it up this morning and you were on here. So. Uh, wonderful. I, I have a question about very similarly. If you have a, a young, uh, early stage, uh, let's call it late stage VC company that's looking to to raise a lot of money to to invest in, let's say, 
you know, electric vehicle space or solar or any of these ideas that, you know, power generation, just a big idea. Uh, how do you go about looking at, you know, 10, 20 year DCF models? You know, when you, at this point, the, the time to horizon to, to make money is so far out. Is it even worth it? How are VCs judged though? Are they judged based on when you make money in your projects or how much the pricing of your companies goes up? I mean, let's be quite clear. The VC yeah. business is not about building businesses. It's about flipping businesses, entry and exit points. I mean, think of, think of you know, legendary VCs, Mark Cuban. How did Mark Cuban's reputation get founded? What is the big transaction that was the anchor of his reputation? Do you remember? Was it? Uh, was it uh, I mean, I think he brought uh, sports radio to the internet or something like that, right? Broadcast. He created a company called Broadcast.com in the yeah. late 90s that he sold to Yahoo at the peak of the dot-com boom for $5 billion. You know where, where Broadcast.com is today? I, I don't think it's a thing. It went Maybe bankrupt it was a bot. It went bankrupt in 2001. Okay. If I judge Mark Cuban based on the quality of the business he's built, there are very few businesses he's built. I can point to maybe the the Dallas, you know, Mavs. The Mavs might be his, his best business because, but he's regarded as legendary. You know why? Because he entered at the right time. He exited at the right time. The VC business is a pricing business, not a value business. If you're a VC company, then here's how you market yourself. You say, look, you know, we don't know whether these cars are going to be great businesses, but we are good. Moment, we're, we're traders. We buy EV at the right time. We sell EV at the right time. And if I were pushing back, the question I would ask is, isn't it a little late for you to be entering this business? Because this is a business where if you're a pricer, you wanted to enter in 2018 and 2019 and get out probably in 2021. You might be entering this business when the pricing is working against you. And when you're entering a business, the pricing is working against you as a VC, you're climbing a mountain. So I would say pick a different business, a business where people have given up on, maybe Russian mining companies. You might have a better shot sure. than EV companies. So are, are you are you okay if I just just ask a you know I, I'm not uh, speaking from the VC audience. I'm speaking more from the company audience. I would say. Yeah. So how how at the company then you know a a VC backed company would you look at uh, something like this? So you've received your first round of capital from them, right? Sorry, yeah, let's, let's imagine I've, I've already received plenty of capital at this point. I'm looking then, to raise more. Then, then be clear about exactly what you welcomed into the middle. VCs are not interested in you building a business. They're interested in flipping your business at a higher price. So they're going to put pressure on you to do the things and let them flip the business at a higher price. I'll take another context. For a long time, in, um, in, tech, in especially with young tech companies, the way these companies were priced was based on number of users. So let's say you've created this great new app and you're buying, building up users, a VC comes in and invests your money. You know what he's gonna pressure you to do, right? Build up the number of users because I want to flip it to somebody else. And since people are paying based on users, more users creates a higher price. So as a founder running the business, you're basically faced with a choice. Do I want to build a business or do I want to go after more users? And the VC is going to pressure you to go after more users. And at some point, if you take enough VC money, the choice is no longer yours. 
when people wonder why there are so many companies, especially in the last decade, that went public with unformed business models. And take Uber, right? It was around for 10 years. It built up users and built up riders, never figured out how to make money. You say, how come they didn't work on building? The answer was very simple. They were playing the pricing game. They had accepted money from everybody and their brother as, as, as a private company. And that played into how the, uh, how the company got built. So I'd say be careful on who, it might be too late since you've already taken the VC money, but you want to be working on two parallel paths. Give the VC what he or she wants, more whatever, you know, whatever they think will lead to a higher price. But at the same time, in parallel, you got to be working on building a business that's actually a long-term business that generates cash flows and profits in the future. How do you work economies of scale? What are your unit economics? And those are the questions you need to ask and answer a question because the VC is not asking them because he or she doesn't care. They just want to flip you to the next player down the pike or take you public at this high price and exit. So their incentives and yours are not matched up. So just watch exactly. out for yourself because they're not going to watch out for you. Thank you, Professor. No, I, I think uh, you gave me a lot to think about. Appreciate it. Thank you. Uh, absolutely. That is such a such a broad, broadly relevant point, which is that uh, incentives are not always lined up. And this, uh, uh, we've still not uh, figured out how to solve this uh, this agency problem. You can't. And you there you are can't so many solve cases, it. Right? It's, it's, as, it's as old as human beings. It's not going to be solved. Because we all have different Tamarizens, different exit games. And that's not something you can easily align, you know, up front, you know, especially if you're, you know, you might be able to do it. If you slow the process down, you're saying, I'm willing to take 10 years to grow rather than two. But that might not be a luxury you have if you're running out of cash. Absolutely. It, it is. Uh... Yeah, the, the problem uh, is probably un, un, unsolvable. And uh, unfortunately, finance and investing seems to be, uh, this seems to be a particularly fertile ground for lots of uh, incentive mismatches and, and so on. Uh, the ne next caller is uh, Lee Andrew. Hi, Professor. Um, thanks for your time, and I've certainly enjoyed your insights today. Um, sticking close to the last question on DCS and time horizons. Um, on your NYU Stern website, you mentioned that your mission is that you're lucky enough to be in a field where a little knowledge and a dose of common sense goes a long way and something that I couldn't agree more with. But with that being said, can you share your thoughts on ESG factors for valuations, given the common sense factors of changing demographics, such as the 1.5 million refugees who have fled Ukraine recently, um, climate change and the Paris Agreement goals, um, straining resources, you know, which is kind of the fundamental basis of economics when it comes to supply and demand, and just the overall change in market preferences by empowering more stakeholders and what that does to companies and valuations going forward. So we just love your, your thought and take on that. Yeah. Uh, you have a lot of stuff you loaded in there. First, let's take uh, the Ukraine. The market's already done it for you, right? I mean, it's amazing to me that ES, I've seen a few ESG people claim credit for, um, for pulling money out of Ukraine. The reality is that the market already did that for you. Spurbank is down 95%. You know, look at Russian companies that are down. So in a sense, the market is, is and it's not doing it because it wants, to, it's, it's got any more, there's any morality component to it. It's a reality that when you create chaos, there's consequences. So I think that's the easy part. So basically things like the Ukraine, the market takes care of it. I don't need ESG to kind of change the game. 
The question, though, when you have more disagreement. So when everybody's agreed that something is good or bad, you don't need ESG. The market takes care of it. Prices reflect it. People don't buy the product. But let's face it. A lot of goodness is subjective. So once you get past this, oh, we, have, you know, we agree on this, we agree on this, even climate change. You know, we might all agree that the, the Earth is warming, but do we all agree that it's man-made? Well, maybe 70% agree, 30% don't. Do we all agree that the way to do this is to, to, is to restrict the production of fossil fuels? And probably closer to 50-50 than because people are saying, how about... So my point with ESG is, you know, it's uh, when you have issues where you don't have consensus, to then say, look, we know what good is, is the height of hubris. So the starting point for ESG is measuring goodness. It's not just difficult, it's impossible. Because your what you bring in as a value system is going to be very different from what I bring in as a value system. And if I am the one devising the ESG scores, then you're not going to agree with it, which is one reason the correlation across the services on ESG measurements is so low. The rankings don't match up. And if you look at the companies that come out as highest ranked on ESG, well, I mean, you, you have companies like Facebook that on one service was ranked in the top 10%, another service was ranked in the bottom 20% because one did not have privacy as one of the criteria for ESC and the other did. So measuring goodness is difficult. And now you've built an entire, I don't, I don't want to call it a discipline because there's not enough in ESC to call it a discipline. It's just mush on something that cannot be measured. What you created is an ecosystem where a lot of people are making a ton of money selling crap. I've never seen a concept more oversold and overhyped than ESG. Absolutely not. Now, so when I hear McKinsey talk about ESG, the two words that come to mind are South Africa. What does McKinsey, the platform to talk about goodness? And when I hear Larry Fink talk about ESG, it's like listening to Ted Bundy talk about the value of life. I mean, who made Ted Bundy? I mean, who made Larry? Might as well make Ted Bundy the spokesperson for ESG. ESG is just, at this point, and I hate to say this, when I look at people in the ESG space, I'm going to put them into two groups. Lots of useful idiots in the space. People that believe they're doing this, and they do it with the best of intentions. 25, 30, 35-year-olds are in the space because they want to make the world a better place, convinced that until they came along, there was no virtue in business. And there are a lot of feckless knaves, people who make money hand over fist on ESG. Larry Fink, feckless knave. Many of the ESG services claiming to measure ESG, feckless knaves. reason I called ESG you know, a, a gravy train, because I made a list of everybody making money and how they're feeding into each other. Services, disclosure, I mean, KPMG, Deloitte are all in the ESG bandwagon because this is a huge revenue maker for them. I'll make a prediction. Ten years from now, every company will have great ESG scores because they'll have learned how to play the game. But the world is not going to be a better place. All we've done with ESG is taken what we don't want to see and pushed it behind the curtain. Say, look, it's gone away. We're good people. There are no easy ways to make the world a better place. And the problem with ESG is it's told people that they can have cake without calories. 
It tells companies they can be good and be more valuable. It tells investors you can be good and make higher returns. And the reality Absolutely. of goodness has always been the more difficult path for humanity. Right? If it's easy being good, why would we need religions? Goodness requires that we make sacrifices. And I think I would have much more respect for ESG. They'd come to companies and say, look, you're going to be a good company. It'll cost you money. They went to invest and say, you, you know, go to endowment funds, say, invest in good companies. By the way, it'll cost you 50 basis points for doing it. I'd have much more respect for the space if they'd been honest and open about the fact that a constrained optimum is always going to give you a less lucrative outcome than an unconstrained optimum, but you're willing to pay the price as the price for goodness. This space is just full of, you know, uh, I, I don't even know what to call them. Salesmen selling stuff, claiming that's going to be good for everyone. And I'm extraordinarily suspicious of what's going to come out of this space. Thank you, Professor. I, I really love the way you, you you just speak your mind, and uh, you know you uh, that, that is such a wonderful uh, quality, and you you share so much of uh, fresh uh, insights and so on. And I, I love this other point that you made that uh, you know when when you have uh, when you're trying to optimize a particular metric, uh, then it's the metric that that may get optimized, and then um, the world is still not a better place, but everybody has great. ESG scores because they are all trying to um, op optimize for that metric. It, it reminds me of what uh, Albert Einstein said: not not everything that uh, counts can be counted, and not everything that uh, can be counted counts. <laughs> uh, absolutely. So, uh, so then, uh, next next question comes from uh, Kiran. Hi, thank you for Warren the uh, profile picture. I thought Warren Buffett was tuning in. <laughs> <laughs> I'm really admired to be the Warren Buffett, sir. <laughs> anyway, <laughs> sir, thank you for the opportunity. I just want to know, sir, uh, sir uh, regarding your view on valuation on selling side, means when to sell. It's, I mean, it's not a question about if it is a good uh, asset means, no, should not sell. Anyway, I'm asking you, uh, what is your... Uh, you tell me approach. when you buy. And I put it, it's, like, it's like math, right? You tell me when you buy. I yeah. put a minus sign in front of it. I'll tell you when to sell. So if you buy when yeah. something is undervalued by 20%, guess what? You sell yes, when it's exactly. undervalued by 20%. Yeah? Okay, and okay. at the end of the discussion, I've never understood this buy and hold forever argument because okay. it seems to me almost it, it's, it's internally inconsistent to claim you're a value investor. But you do it only on one side of the transaction, but not on the other. Right? Okay. It is true that when you sell, there are things that come in that you don't have when you buy. I'll give you a couple of things. One is taxes. Now, much as I'd like to live in a world without taxes, I, something has to be more overvalued for me to sell than it has to be undervalued when I buy. Why? Because I have to pay my taxes. So something has to get overvalued by 30% when I was willing to buy it when it was undervalued by 15%. Like one of my biggest um, biggest worries as an investor is when I buy something and I'm right too soon. You know what I mean okay. by too soon? You buy something and it pops 50% in the next two days. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's become I'm... overvalued. And I know yeah. I should be selling. Okay. But you know, I'll be paying short-term capital gains taxes. That's 40% that's 40 of that gain gone right away yes, yes. even if the company is doing well also doesn't matter right it's price and value it's got nothing yeah. to do with the company 
Yes, 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 yes. Forget about this company doing well badly. That's that's for corporate finance to discuss. In investing, it's not whether the company is doing well or badly. It's whether the price that you're paying is higher than value. You can have a company yes, that's sir. doing badly and get gets worse. That can be a great investment. And you can have yes. a company doing well, getting better. That can be a terrible investment. Separate investments from assessment of corporate quality. The two have little to do with it. <laughs> Okay, thank you, sir. Thank you. So the next caller is David. Hello, can you hear me? Yes. 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 So uh, I'm a high school student. So Professor Demorin, I have a question. So you're very passionate, and you have a lot of insights on finance and investment. But I was just wondering, like, it's just a question on life. Like, why have you chosen to be a teacher, like staying on the sidelines as a spectator? rather than entering the industry or bureaucracy where you can have a direct involvement and really see a, like a tangible impact on your conviction. What can be more direct than investing your own money and seeing the tangible impact in your own returns? I don't think investing other people's money is having a tangible impact. In, in what sense is that, you know, I, and almost everything I do is completely transparent. So if you, if you want to you know, join in my journey, you're welcome to. So I think this notion that you can make a difference by being a portfolio manager or a hedge fund, that you're somehow not doing things as a teacher is, is absurd. So I think, I don't know what you mean by a tangible impact. I mean, what hedge fund investor does, you know, and I, I know this sounds morbid, but when a hedge fund investor does, how long do you think his legacy lasts? Or does he have a legacy at all? In fact, managing yeah, money, so, you leave um, an imprint that's so tiny that nobody remembers you were there. Not so on money, like it's more so like with like corporate finance, where like you have lots to say about like, you know, how businesses should run, like with objectives. Yeah. So why have you not chosen to like, you know, like... Uh, because I'm too late. I have better things. To, I'm, I, I like to teach. No. I mean, what's the end game in your, in your life? I mean, I know portfolio to maximize returns, but if I asked you, what's what's your what's your objective in life? Is it to maximize impact? I mean, that's a very strange objective to have. I mean, you can be a serial killer and have a huge amount of impact. Your objective in life is to maximize your happiness during your lifetime. And I don't think too many people who build businesses seem to have very happy lifetimes. And you think Steve Jobs is a happy person over his life? I seem to. I mean, he was an incredible business builder, but you know, he had to give up a lot of things, including his own children, that he had to kind of ignore along the way to get where he is. I had to make my choices, and I made mine based on hey, what is it that I want to remember my life by, not to what do I what do I want. In fact, you can't measure success by what other people think of what you've done. you got to measure success based on what you think about what you've done. Now, I tell, I've told my kids this because I know in this age of social media, you're always measuring impact and success by what do other people. I mean, let's face it. You measure the, the quality of your post by how many people react to it rather than what you thought when you were writing the post. And I think people live their lives based on affirmation and what do other people think of me. And I've been lucky that I've never been driven by that need. And if I've had an impact, it's been completely accidental. I've never gone out there and said, I want to have 400,000 Twitter followers. I want to have you know, 300,000 people watching me on YouTube. I've never written a book that I 
wrote because I wanted to be read by people. I wrote a book because I had something to say and I wanted to say it. So the, the best benefits are intrinsic. They come from within you. So what makes you happy is starting a business and building the business. By all means, do it. But don't do it because you think other people will think you've had an impact because you built that business because that's no way to live your life. That That is such a great point. Yeah. In fact, Warren Buffett talks often about having an inner scorecard and how you have to judge yourself based on your inner scorecard and not uh, it's tough external to do validation. That. Yeah, I agree. I, I agree. Absolutely. And I'm glad I'm not 25 or 20 right now because I think we live in a world where it's more and more difficult to do that because every action we take, every move we make, you go to a restaurant, you post an Instagram, you get that response of that was a good restaurant or that was a terrible choice. Your entire life is built on people reacting to what you do and it's not healthy. No, it's not healthy and it makes it much more difficult to think about the intrinsic. Absolutely. And and the other thing that, uh, other little nugget about Warren Buffett is uh, when, when somebody asked him, how do you want to be remembered? Uh, he said, I would like to be remembered as a teacher and you, you are exactly a teacher. So <laughs> uh, it, it, it's, uh, I, there's a lot of satisfaction and you, you don't judge yourself based on how others perceive your work. Or and I, like and you know what? I don't judge others either. I don't judge investment bankers as greedy. I don't judge hedge funds as self. You know, I mean, I think, you know, they made their choices. I made mine. I respect their choices and they need to respect mine. I've had multiple opportunities during my lifetime where people have said, you know, people have asked me whether I'd come to man, manage a hedge fund or I would come and work for them and pay. And I said, look, you know, it's not for me. It doesn't mean that I don't think it's a good thing to do, but it's not for me. It's not what I want to do with my life. And um, I have to make my choices. So as long as people respect my choices, I'll respect theirs. Absolutely. It's a great point. Um, so the next caller is Mahesh. Mahesh, you're on mute. Okay. Yeah, sorry. Like sorry. Can you, oh, can you hear me now? Yes. Okay. Sorry about that. Um, so thanks, Tenke, and thanks, Professor, for your time. Um, I'm in the accounting profession, and I know that you've often been critical <laughs> of the profession, Professor. So, uh, And that's okay. Nothing, nothing personal. Um, so my question to you is, what would be your advice in terms of what the profession can do to better help the investors? And and I had ESG on my mind as well to add to that question, but I know you covered it, so I'll, I will save that question. But just, you know, if it's too broad-brushed, maybe you can focus on some key things that come to your mind off the top. Now my advice is don't try too hard. I think that's the problem with accounting, is they're trying too hard to help investors. And in the process, they're forgetting the basic accounting they need to do. The entire focus for fair value accounting was to help investors, right? That by replacing book values with fair values. that in, And what accountants didn't realize, it wasn't that useful. Because by the time accountants wrote book value to fair value, investors already knew. And you were taking away information that investors need in the first place. So maybe my advice to accountants is don't try so hard. You know, your focus is to, your historians, just record the past, record it well, and disclose it cleanly. Let investors then take it and do with it what they want. 
but don't put yourself in the shoes of saying we're going to make projections to help investors because that doesn't help it. In fact, undercuts what you're trying to do. So less is more. Be less ambitious. I know many accounting rule writers don't like to hear it, but a balance sheet is never, ever, ever, no matter how much fair valuing you do there, is never, ever, ever, ever going to be a substitute for a market price, ever. So stop trying so hard to make balance sheets matter. They just don't. Let it go. That, that, that is such a, such a great point. Um, so in, in his 1986 letter, Buffett had this sentence saying, um, the accountant's job is to, is to record, uh, not to evaluate. And uh, that train's left the, the, the station, though. That that train's left the station. So we're we're all absolutely. heading to a world where, account, <laughs> where the line between accounting and valuation has become. A, I mean, you know that eighty percent of the revenues at many accounting firms now come from their appraisal and evaluation services, not from basic auditing and accounting. So, I did not know yeah, that. The, yeah, the game has changed. Um, so uh, the next question comes from CGF user. Hello, Professor Damodaran. Um, this is Ahmed. Um, nice to hear you live. Uh, great insights. Thank you. Uh, my question was more to get your views on efficient markets. I mean, is that more of a, in your opinion, is that more of a ideal state that doesn't exist as such? And then secondly, also your views on anomalies. I mean, there is a financial you know, uh, theories on anomalies and wanted to know what your thoughts are. Theory on, I'm sorry, on what? Uh, on anomalies like, uh, you know, uh, like momentum trading and, and, you know, long and short um, trading. Uh, wanted to know your, your thoughts on that. So w- what did you lump them into? I, no, what is the term you put them all in? Because that's uh, a lot I, of them. It's anomalies like, you know, people who chase the alphas. Well, nobody finds them anyway. So are hedge funds also in this group? Because they chase alphas, they don't find them. So what is it? Everybody's chasing alpha. That means absolutely nothing. If you're an active investor, you chase alpha. So what makes these people different? So uh, what, what uh, I mean, what I was getting to is that, you know, in efficient markets, right? Like we talk about that, you know, in, information, as long as it's available, Right, the market reacts to it and adjusts for the new normal. Let's turn it back on you, Ahmed. Do you believe markets are efficient? In the long term, yes, but you know, uh, we all do. We all do. Otherwise, you'd never make money, right? When you buy something because it's undervalued, the price. Efficient market is just part of this. It's not a. It's not a steady state. You're constantly moving away from it and back to it. Efficient. So this notion that markets reach efficiency and they stay at this steady state is absurd because markets are composed of human beings. It's not this machine and human beings overreach and underreach. So this, you know, you have to let go of this notion of efficient markets as the steady state where, you know, where everything is at a, at a particular price, because even people who are pure believers in market efficiency, Gene Farmer doesn't believe it. He just believes that the deviations from efficiency are random. In fact, the way to think about it, we all believe markets make mistakes. The question is, are those mistakes random? In which case, there's nothing you can do to find those mistakes. Might as well put your money in index funds. Are they non-random, systematic, where you can find a variable that will help you find what's cheap and what's expensive? That's really, I mean, everybody believes that markets make mistakes. 
So don't make this 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 kind of strange definition of market efficiency be your dividing line. We all believe that markets make mistakes and those mistakes get corrected over time. The question is, are those mistakes random or are they systematic? Can they be predicted or can they not? That's really what divides investors. And the second group, I'm not even sure what to say. We all chase alphas. There's nothing. Now, I, I find this whole notion of retail investors and professional investors to be kind of laughable. Because that implicit there is this belief that professional investors somehow know what they're doing. That's not true at all. Professional investors are just as much chasers of alpha. In fact, they're worse chasers of alpha than retail investors are because their entire livelihood is built around alpha and selling that alpha. At least if you're a retail investor and you do badly, all you have to do is explain yourself to your spouse. If you're a hedge fund manager and you don't deliver alpha, you lose your business. So if you think about chasing alpha, everybody does it. Professional investors do so more than retail investors do. So there's momentum that's coming out of that. I would look at professional investors, not retail investors. Okay. Thank you, Professor. Uh, sure. Uh, the, the, the next uh, caller is uh, Pra Prabjeet Singh. Hello. Yes. Hello. Am I audible? Yeah. Um, thanks, Tanki and Professor, for your contribution in my development as an investor, first of all. And uh, my question is more in the form of a quiz, because I want to understand about your filters in thinking and how do you think about valuing the stock? Shall I proceed? Sure. Oh, okay. I'm, I'm glad multiple that, uh, questions I have uh, the professor at my side. <laughs> so, uh, so there is a company. I don't want to name the company so that it has no influence on the decision. And I want to have a six points. Um, say the net profit is 2,200 crores in a year. The profit and sales growth is 10%. It is debt free. So no um, point of debt or, or um, for cash, how much is on hand. Very strong mode about indestructible. Dividend yield of 1 to 1.5%. To and very high returns on equity and return on capital invested. Like 50% above. So return on equity is always 50% above and return on capital invested is 100% above. Now, was this information sufficient to make a bold, not a, not a exact valuation, but a very weak calculation on what the market cap would be? You're interested be? in the valuation? You're interested in whether you should invest in the company? No. Yeah, you I value the company, I'm... but you forgot one very critical, critical ingredient, right? Yeah. What's the price? It's the price. It's all about the price. The price. If all of those good things that you described are already incorporated in the price, who cares that you hold yes, these? Yes, but good I want things? to. Why does it matter when you whether you want to value it? Right? It's not a question of whether whether you can value. Of course, I can value that company. Just as I can value a company where you took all those stories you told about the company and flipped them into the negative side. Terrible company earns 15% less than its cost of capital, has horrible management. I can value that company too, but ultimately, what's investment driven by? What's the price you're paying for this company? If what you've described is true, everybody sees it, they're building into the price, it could be very, it's very you know, conceivable that the second company, that horrible company, is in fact the better investment. So stop. I mean, this notion, I know this all this talk about moats and great management. It's, it's, it's all fine. 
But I think it's an excuse for, for just buying a company based on the story. Value the company compared to the price. If the value is higher than the price, buy. If not, sell. And it's that I would say that about any company. So this entire lead-in became almost redundant. Because I'd have said that if you told me about an average company or a terrible company. So the lead-in is almost irrelevant here. It's all about value and price. Keep it focused on value and price. Yes, I was just saying that if you, if you go about like the, the Buffett way was you don't look at the price of the of the of the stock. No, 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 no. Don't put decision. words into what? Hey, listen, when people take Warren Buffett, and they put words in his mouth. I have never heard Buffett say the price doesn't matter. You find no, 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 one I... example of him saying that, right? Because the price matters. It's the only thing that matters because it's the only number you control as an investor. Yeah, he said you don't, in a CNBC interview, he said that you don't look at the price first because it could then affect That's your fine. decision so about value. So basically look the at company. the price last. That's a sequencing thing. So you don't want it to bias your choice. Fine. Go look at the numbers. Everything you said can be built into an intrinsic valuation, right? In fact, I would argue that the risk in this company is probably higher than the risk in the bad company. You know why? Yeah, Because you built in all this great stuff for I don't know how long. You're not going to get very many positive surprises because what you've described is a company that's already optimally run doing great things. How the hell are you going to get a positive surprise in this company? The only things that can happen to you are bad things now. That moat gets a little shallower. The returns get a little lower. Your value is only going to drop. So this notion that risk is somehow lower at the great company than the terrible company is completely misplaced. It goes back to what I said at the start of the session. If you set expectations way high, the only surprises you're going to get are negative surprises. The company just described, all I can find out is bad stuff relative to expectations. Huh. Absolutely. Okay. So in, in these episodes, uh, in previous episodes, we, we talked about Michael Morbison and... Uh, uh, how how uh, he says one of the best papers that he has ever written, uh, he has ever read on um, value investing is this uh, thing written by this guy who is a horse horse race better Christ on on value, and there, there he he makes exactly this point. So the the job isn't to find the the horse that's going to win the race; it's the horse best whose odds. odds of winning the race are mispriced. Right. And, and I uh, think, and I, you know, one thing I think I would blame old-time value investing for is this fixation with great companies or good investments and bad companies. Are, in fact, I have a post on that, on great companies and great investments. And, and I have a, a table on all the possible choices, right? You can have a great company that you can buy at a low price. That's in, insanely good. Go for it. You're very seldom going to find it. You can have a great company that you pay this premium price for, where it can become just an average investment. You can have a great company that's overpriced because everybody's building in greatness and perpetuity. And you can do the same thing with average companies and with terrible companies. And the real question becomes, what if you have two undervalued companies? One is an undervalued great company and the other is an undervalued average company. Which one would you buy? I would buy the undervalued average company because I have more things that can go in my favor in terms of things working out to be better than expected than the undervalued great company. That surprises people. But I think it's all about potential surprises in the future. And if you set your expectations really high, those surprises are more likely to be downside than upside. 
thank you i just want to reveal if it's like the point being that it was nestle and i was uh, i'm not i have no interest in investing it is uh, the company we're talking about was nestle india and mm-hmm. uh, it is it's trading at 85 uh, times its earnings so uh, the point being that if i i don't know the, i think nestle products will be here 25 years from now that's fine and, so uh, it, so if you value do you come come up with 85 times earnings as you value Yeah, this is the question. This is this is this is what I was. There's no question there, right? I mean, your value. You give it gave me the parameters. What it's trading at is irrelevant. That's not even an input into your valuation. So you take all the good things you told me. You put it into an intrinsic valuation. You come up with a value per share. Is that value per share more than eighty-five times earnings or less? That's all it boils down to, right? Yeah, and it would be different for everyone. Uh, someone yeah. would be happy at fifty. Someone would be happy at thirty. That could be said about every. That could be said. But again, the lead-in becomes irrelevant. There, right? I could say that about every single stock. So my question is, why the lead-in? What what does the lead-in do for you other than distract you? No, the, okay. Uh, the, right. I mean, the, the lead-in. So that, that, that's my point. Is what yeah. would you ask? So the, you none have... of those are filters. None of those are filters. What you've described are characteristics. Filters would be if I screen for companies with those characteristics and I look at only those companies, then that's a filter. I would never use that filter because then I'm looking at a subset of companies where I'm least likely to find mistakes. Where do investors okay. make mistakes? They don't make mistakes on companies that are functioning well where everybody likes. They make mistakes where people are panicking. In my classes, I tell people go where it's darkest. go where people are panicking i'm really tempted right now i have no interest in investing in to- russian companies i'm really interested though in valuing sperbank and Sver- severstal the russian companies because from a purely investment standpoint and of course your de- definitions of goodness and badness have to come into the decision those are the companies we're going to see the biggest mistakes is because people are fleeing they're doing panicky things that's when you're most likely to find the mistakes so if i'm running screens it's for companies where there've been big drops in the stock price where there've been new management burden because the old management is not working where things are in turmoil and people are throwing up their hands that's when the payoff to doing valuation is greatest and that's where you want to focus your attention exactly so so the the, the whole idea of uh... asymmetric upside versus down downside uh, yeah is such a powerful idea in in all of investing uh, so so we can take the next question it's from uh, ak hello go ahead hello uh, yeah hello aswath sir uh, thanks a lot for taking my question so i'm an early uh, career professional like uh, at 23 years of age so when this corona virus break out as you said uh, like go where people are panicking so when i saw that like uh, indigo airline company in india it was trading at 1800 rupees but then it went to 900 so i knew that the world has don't, returned don't, to like don't, wait, 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 don't say the word new because you're using the benefit of hindsight now to say you knew yeah yeah so middle of 2020 none of us had no. any idea on how this yeah yeah no no yeah but so you I, made I like, you made a bet it was a informed bet that the airlines would still be around you bought it at 900 so yeah. tell me the happy ending here yeah so 
it returned to like I sold it at like fourteen hundred. But okay. the main question, like it might be a foolish question, like I saw my senior colleagues making a lot of money on like tech stocks. But for a person like me who who had just you know entered in tech like in uh, jobs market, I didn't have you know enough money to put in the stocks. So will will we ever you know get a chance like something like this in maybe in future that uh, like. You want, an, you want another crazy. pandemic so you can play this game? No. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I would want to answer that question. I mean, what, well, that's a strange question to ask. You're saying, will there be another crisis? Absolutely. It won't look no, like the no. past crisis. So, of course, there'll be. Whether it, look like, it won't look anything like COVID, but there'll be, of course, there'll be another crisis. We're in the middle of one right now. In fact, you could argue that this is potentially more catastrophic than COVID because you could have World War Three if people don't play their cards right. So this is a crisis. The kinds of companies that are impacted will be very different in this crisis. So, no. So the, next, uh, the, the human cost of these crises as well. I don't, I've never sat down and said, please God, give me a crisis so I can make more money. That's not a very healthy way to think about investing. Absolutely, absolutely. Especially if you're 23. I would say you want less crisis over the rest of your lifetime, not more crises. Yeah, yeah. Thank you. Like, I was just worried, like, um, maybe, like, will, will we just see just average returns all the so time? What, or like... Oh, you will see. In fact, I'll make a prediction. You will see average returns over the rest of your life. Yeah, okay. Thank That's you, sir. Fine, that, right? that, that you don't invest to make, you know, be, but I want to say something. You don't invest to get rich. You invest to preserve and grow your wealth. So you know what you need to do? Go out and get a job, get an income, get savings, and that savings get invested. Investing is a way in which you can compound those savings. But if you're viewing investing as a way in which you can get rich, you're going to get poor really fast and really soon. Thanks, sir. Thanks for the advice. Absolutely. So, um, Buffett also has this thing where he, he says uh, the point of investing is to is to preserve and grow purchasing power o over time. And so then the next caller is uh, uh, Ravi. Uh, so let's uh, let's make uh, Ravi the la last caller because uh, um, um, Professor Damodaran said he has to leave soon. Go Can you hear me, 10K? Yeah, yeah. Sure. Thank you, 10K and uh, Professor, for your time. I really appreciate uh, uh, Professor, uh, the way he's sharing and uploading all the things on YouTube. Uh, my question is, what is a terminal value? Or let me put this way, how you calculate the terminal value? Uh, uh, recently, you uh, uh, value the fame companies and you shared uh, your um, calculation uh, in the public side. So it, one of the company you can take and if you can elaborate how you calculated the terminal value, like example, Facebook, I think you uh, calculated 1.2 trillion uh, uh, terminal value. I, I'm going to take a pass on that, 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 that doesn't sound right. Exactly the same way in the thousands of valuations I've done over my lifetime. Exactly the same way. So I, it's, um, there's really no secret there, and it's not some equation. It's just a, 
it's an it's it's a it's a mathematical truism as you have cash flows growing at a constant if you have it's a, it's a it's a sum of an infinite series basically if your growth rate is at a constant rate forever and you have a discount rate that stays same you have any, a mathematical equation for an infinite series it's what we stole out of math we put it into our discounted cash flow valuations but there's no real mystery behind it so I'm just going to let it go because it's exactly the same calculation and because it's an Excel spreadsheet, you can see the equation. If the equation doesn't make sense, it's time to revisit the basics of present value. Right. So I just want to add one thing that um, it's it's not the 1.2 trillion figure is not really the terminal value because you have to discount the terminal value back to present. So the way... Uh, it is the terminal value, but the the component of what the value of that terminal value today would be much lower because you got to wait. Exactly. Be- because of the discounting that yeah. it would be the terminal value mm-hmm. at the time you end uh, at the end of the first stage of the DCF and when you reach that stage. But then you have to discount that to today. So the discounted <laughs> value is more like five five hundred and seventy one billion or something like that. That that's just a. Uh, so so yeah, we, uh, I just want. Mm-hmm. With the fifteen percent discount rate, right? Uh, Five hundred seventy-one. Uh, I, I don't think I'm, I've, I've used a fifteen percent discount rate in a really long time. The median cost no, of gas for global companies like six and a half percent, maybe it's close to seven percent. Right. So, so the discount rate varies from year to year. You, you can you can look at the spreadsheet, and uh, if if you, if you have a question, but it's not double digit. None of the companies is a double digit. We don't live in a world with double digit returns anymore, at least in dollar terms. So. Okay, go. Right, exactly, exactly. So, so I, I just uh, want to thank Professor Damodaran again. Um, th- thank you so much. This was so insightful. And uh, it did not really matter that, uh, you know, I, I set expectations so high. You you shattered all of them anyway. So th- this this was great. I, I got so many, so many insights from this and I'm, I'm going to listen to it again. Uh, uh, so so uh, thank, you, thank you so much, Professor. We uh, really appreciate it. You're welcome. I was glad to, glad to be on. Take care.